Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Let me encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles. Uh, Your order of worship will say the Gospel of Mark. I'm throwing you a knuckleball today. We're going to Matthew. Same parable, but found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Matthew 21 Beginning in verse 33, this is one of three parables, three, that are told, that is told in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? And today, while we could camp out in Mark and while we could glean truth from Luke, today we are going to pitch a tent a while with Matthew. In Matthew 21, verse 33, listen To another parable, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went away to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants To collect his produce, but the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first, and they treated them the same way. Finally, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants, they said to him. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never heard the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to people that produce the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone who falls on it. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. It's the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. (laughs) 
God, in this moment, we yield our common heart before you. We surrender our common mind before you. We lay in humility our common soul before you. And we seek to learn from you. As we have opened these scriptures now, Lord, we pray that you would help open our minds and our hearts and make ready the soil of our soul that we may be transformed by what you plant within us. In the name of Jesus Christ, let the church say, amen. Not long ago, there was a family living in a beautiful home in West Palm Beach, Florida. And a film crew, movie crew, came to the family and asked for permission to film an episode of their TV series in front of their home. Well, the family knew that this was going to involve some very violent car crashes police chase. It's going to be a big deal. And they said, yeah, great. Come on and do it. Well, as it unfolded and the, and the car chase ensued and the crashes happened, I mean, they just trashed the front yard. The front lawn was being utterly destroyed. It was, it was awful. It was a big mess. And about that time, while it was underway, they got a phone call from New York from the owner of the home calling to speak to his renters to ask, what's going on? Turns out that the ones who gave the film crew permission to film were just tenants who lived there and had no authority to give permission to trash the yard, right? I heard that story, and this is what I thought. Trouble arises when those who rent think they own when I was in college, I shared an apartment with three other guys. And oh, the things that we did to that apartment. I mean, we trashed it. I mean, there, there were dart holes in the wall. Yeah. There were, the, the, the carpet was just a mess, right? One day, I was on the telephone in the kitchen, which used to be connected to the wall, guys, with a... <laughs> A wire with a coily thing, right? And I'm talking to somebody on the phone, and my roommate, who is a bit of a, a, a pyromaniac, comes into the kitchen, and he's drawing this beautiful design on the wall and the floor of the kitchen. And, and I say, what, what, are you, what are you doing? He just grinned at me, turned off the lights, and lit it on fire. <laughs> and this beautiful depiction of some picture that he had drawn was was illuminated in flames. My other roommate comes in and thinking the house is on fire, because it was, unloads a fire extinguisher, you know. At the end of our lease, yeah, when it was time to give the key back, we gave the key back, and, and I'm telling you, that doesn't scratch the surface of what we did to that poor little two-bedroom apartment. 
And I, I said to the landlord, uh, I said, here are your keys. Hey, so the deposit? Um, <laughs> she looked at me and just walked away awkwardly, right? Troubles arise when those who think they, or those who rent, think they own. And the same, I think, can be said about our mortal existence. The sum total of our life can be expressed in that same way that every one of us, we are, we are all temporary residents on a land we do not own. Every one of us, temporary residents on a land we do not own. And you say, well, I own some stuff. I own. I I got some deeds and titles to some things. I know. I get it. I get it. For now. But there is coming a day when we have breathed our last. When we must make, render an account of the life that we've lived when we come back to the table and everything that has defined our lives, all the things that we were, all the things that we did, all the places we went, all the things we accumulated and accrued and achieved, it all goes back on the table. And as our friend John Ortberg says in his wonderful book, when this game is over, it all goes back in the box because rent is due. That, I believe, is part of the background behind this parable that we have before us for our study this morning. In the background is this assumption that this life that we think is so permanent is not. It's not. Everything that we think is temporary lasts forever. And everything that we sometimes think is permanent is not as permanent as we think. And in the chapter just before the one we read... The religious authorities are attacking Jesus because they are accusing him of doing some things without having any authority to do those things. In fact, they they watch him perform signs and miracles and wonders. They hear him teach in ways that no one had ever really taught before. And they raised a question and they said, by what authority? By, By what authority are you doing these things? Which is fascinating to me. Because here these religious leaders are, the ones who have entered into their position, their temporary position. I might say it this way. From a position of their borrowed, rented authority, they have the audacity to question the authority of the one who has it in the room. I remember not long ago... um, when I was at my first pastorate, I, I, I finished in, in Tennessee. I was there almost seven years, and I, I went to Orlando, right? But midway through my time there, almost six years, we put a brand new sign in front of the church. It said, First Baptist Church. It was great, beautiful little sign. And, and they said, how do you want to put your name on the sign? And, and do you want it Reverend Sean King or Rev Sean King? What do you, what do you want? And then and I said, you know what? Can we just do it without the name? Let's... You know, because it's, it's, it's also, let's just do the First Baptist without putting the name. And the guy who designed the sign, uh, he said, well, it's removable. <laughs> I said, all right, slice me a dose of that humble pie. You know, let me just kind of, uh. And it was, it was on little hooks. You can take it off. <laughs> so we packed and we're in the U-Haul going down the road. Last thing we grabbed was that last little thing. 
from a position of their borrowed authority, from a position of their rented authority, they have the audacity to question his, right? And Jesus then tells a parable, a parable that if we can really learn to live inside it, if we can learn to see what it is that Jesus wants us to see, we may be able to learn something about how to live in a way that has great meaning and beauty and a sense of freedom in this lease that we call life. Now, the parable has at least four groups of characters, four characters in all. And I believe if we live inside and walk alongside this parable with those characters, we may be able to learn something about ourselves, about where we are in this parable as well. In the parable, there is a landowner. There is the tenants, the slaves, and the son. The landowner, the tenants, the slaves, and the son. Let's start with the landowner. Without any measure of ambiguity from the beginning of this parable, it is without insinuation, it is boldly expressed there is one person who owns the property. There is a landowner. And in this parable, obviously, clearly, the landowner symbolizes God, right? This parable has an echo to it, an echo. If we listen closely, we hear the echoes of an ancient psalm. You remember Psalm 24, don't you, right? The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. Now, that's the NRSV version. That's the version from which I preach. But every once in a while, you just got to go King James. King James Version says it this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So before another word is said on the parable, he introduces it by making sure that the listeners, you and me, understand there is one who owns this property. It is the Lord. And you know, sometimes the most obvious truth is the one that is most easily forgotten, isn't it? Isn't it easy to forget the sometimes the very clearest, most obvious truth? And we, we move about our life and do our life in a way that we forget the very basic, and that is that the Lord owns this joint. And everyone who is in it, the story is told of a young scientist who got a little cocky. He was having a conversation with God, and he said, Hey, God, by the way, hey, thanks, you know, for everything. I mean, it was you really got us going well. Thanks, but we've got it from here. We got it from here because, man, the things that we can do now through, through molecular biology, through uh, you know, genetic engineering, right? Through, through these marvelous sciences, we were able to do so many things. We can clone organisms. We can regenerate tissues. We can transplant organs like we never have been able to do before. In fact, God... Listen, we're able to do things now that only used to be called um, miracles, right? Thanks. Hey, so appreciate it, but we got it from here. To which God said, yeah? To which the young man said, absolutely. So God said, how about we, how about we test that theory? He said, how about you make a person and I make a person? Let's say, let's make a man. Let's make a man and let's do it the old-fashioned way, Right? Let's do it the way I did in the beginning. Let's make a man out of the earth. 
And the young man said, hey, no problem. You're on. And the young man bends down to begin to scoop up a little earth to begin his project. And God says, uh, but, but, uh, uh, uh. get your own dirt. <laughs> right, new game, right? Sometimes the most obvious truth is the one that is most easily forgotten. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But this parable is not a parable just to remind us that the place belongs to the Lord. The landowner in this parable is not just one who owns the land. He is, he is one who has poured his life into the land. Listen to the way it's described in the first verse. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. Listen to the verbs. Put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watch tower. This is a God or a landowner who is meant to remind us of the God who was on his hands and knees in the beginning of this story. Dirt under the fingernails making things happen. And let's stick for just a moment with that image of the vineyard. We're told that the landowner himself dug out, created this vineyard. In the Old Testament, the vineyard is a, is a recurring theme. It's a recurring image that's meant to convey something very powerful. Throughout the Old Testament, one of the most beautiful expressions of God's heart, one of the most beautiful expressions of God's desire for humankind is to think about a vineyard. A vineyard that is lush and fertile and beautiful and fruitful. And time and again, throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel are described as God's great project, that vineyard of cultivating love and grace and mercy and compassion and justice into, into a vineyard that can feed the whole World. When we look at Psalm 80, for example, in Psalm 80, we hear part of the story of God um, saving the people of Israel from Egypt. Remember when they were in prison or they were in, in Egyptian captivity and God rescued them out of their bondage and their oppression. But in Psalm 80, this is the way it's described. It's as if God reached and plucked up a vine, Psalm 80 tells us, plucked up a vine, see it in his fist, his tightly clenched fist, right, with, with dirt falling in between. He plucks up a vine out of Egypt, the text says, and plants it in the land of promise. Is that not a beautiful image? That God, the landowner, is so invested in this project called humankind, this vineyard of great grace, that it's as if he plucks up out of our oppression and trouble and saves us from the life taking, sun-beating, brick-baking existence that is so miserable, plucks us up and plants us in a life of promise, in a land flowing with milk and honey. In Jeremiah 2, the, the great prophet talks about this image, but when he talks about the vineyard that's planted in the promised land, the vineyard of the people of Israel, he describes it as the choicest vine from the purest stock. But maybe the most beautiful expression to describe what the landowner thinks of this vineyard is in Isaiah 5. This is the way he reads, uh, the, this is the way the text reads in Isaiah 5. My beloved had a vineyard, 
On a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of all its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. There is this reminder that God from the beginning has had a desire to plant something beautiful in you with great expectation that there would be fruitfulness, enough fruit that your life would bear it and share it. Somewhere along the way in the history of the people of our people, the people of faith, something went wrong and what was supposed to be life-giving grapes became sour grapes, wild grapes. He goes on and we hear in, in, in Isaiah 25 just how deep his desire was for this vineyard that he's meant to plant in us on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. Do you know that his great vineyard project from the beginning, from the time he talked about it with Abraham, where he said, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and through you, you will be a blessing to all the nations. His vision from the very beginning has been to create a kind of kingdom that feeds all the world, where all the nations of the world can come and eat and drink and be filled. So this is the image that Jesus reaches back and grabs when he tells his parable, and he tugs it forward in the telling of his own parable, and this is the way Jesus describes it. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. So the vineyard represents that thing that's possible in you, that thing that's possible in me. And yet those two other words intrigue me. Built a fence, no, back up a little bit, built a fence around it and built a watchtower. Now in our text it's called a fence and it's called a watchtower, but in Mark's version of the gospel, he calls it a wall. A wall and a watchtower. Do you know that we could talk all week long? I mean, I could build a series of sermons on walls and watchtowers. Living in a world with walls and watchtowers. And on the one hand, you look at that image and you say to yourself, okay, so this landowner who made this beautiful vineyard puts a fence around it, a wall around it to protect it from threats, from animals that would come and eat off of it, for invaders who would come uninvited. He builds a watchtower so that from the tower he could look out and see what threats may be coming a long distance off and be able to protect itself. And all of that would be absolutely true. That's part of why you build a wall and a watchtower around your vineyard. But don't forget that in the Bible, when we talk about walls and watchtowers, we talk about them differently. In the scriptures, our Lord is always introduced as one who is dismantling Walls of separation, they come tumbling down all around the feet. For in Jesus Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, barbarian, scathian, uh, free or slave. But he has removed the dividing wall. So there is a sense in which around this vineyard, the kingdom, the life that is beautiful and, and fruitful, there is a fence, but is a fence that is permeable. It's a fence that's not built simply to keep trouble out but it's a fence 
to draw in from a world of trouble those who are in danger. Do you see the nuance and how it's a little different? We think about walls and watchtowers differently. A watchtower, yeah. We could climb a watchtower and look to make sure no one who is a threat can come our way. But at the same time, in Scripture, through the heart and through the eyes of Jesus, we climb watchtowers not to see who may be a threat, but to see who out there may be in threat. In case there may be someone out who needs the safe harbor of the vineyard. Right? Yeah, so this landowner, he builds this vineyard and he, he constructs it in a way where all are welcome to come in and even constructs it in a way to see far beyond its boundaries is there anyone else who is hungry for the, the fruit that this vineyard provides. So this landowner is not just one who owns land, he's one who has a desire that your life is teeming with fruitfulness, the fruit that you bear and the fruit that you share. But it's not only about a landowner, is it? It's about tenants. It brings us to the tenants who were living on the land. And the ones who were living on the land in this parable clearly represent the religious leaders of the day, right? I mean, these were the ones who were stewards of the vineyard, stewards of this kingdom life, the religious leaders of the first century who had blown it, right? Blown it. They were supposed to be able to see their existence as a place to bring others who are hurting, and yet they did not. But the truth is, in all candor, <laughs> the real tenants are you and me. For we are the ones invited to live in the vineyard and are expected to do something with it. That you and I, when we, when we live in the vineyard of God's grace, our lives ought to show the fruitfulness of having lived there. If you live in the vineyard of God's grace, your life ought to be fruitful with the evidence that you have been changed, that you've been drinking of the fruit, eating of its vine. Oscar Wilde tells a story about Jesus walking through a city street, and he comes across this guy who's, who's gorging on a, on a meal. I mean, he's just gluttonously just eating, stuffing his face with food, ravenously. And he's getting drunk off of wine. He just won't stop. He can't be satiated. And Jesus comes up to him and says, dude, this is not the King James, but <laughs> says, dude, why are you living like that? What, why are you eating like that? Why are you living like that? And the man said, because I was once a leper and you healed me. How else am I supposed to live? Jesus continued walking and he found this, this woman who was dressed scantily clad, seductively, and you could tell what her occupation may have been by night. And saw this man looking at her, staring at her like a ravenous wolf, hunting. And he said to him, son, why are you looking at this woman this way? And he said, because I was once blind and you gave me sight. How else am I supposed to live? And he turns to the woman and says, daughter, why, do you, why are you living this way? And she said, because I was once a sinner and you forgave me, gave me a new start. How else am I supposed to live? Sometimes the most obvious truth is the one that's easily overlooked. But if you live in the vineyard, if you have been one to be invited into the vineyard of God's grace, if you live in the vineyard of God's mercy and have been given another chance, our lives have to show evidence by the fruit of change. 
A little bit like the story that John Ortberg tells about the woman who's going through traffic and she's in a big hurry, but the guy in front of her is not. So they're coming up on a traffic light and it turns yellow. And so you know what that means, right? Slow down, right? Not speed up. So the guy in front slows down. And she has to slam on her brakes and she's mad about that. Oh, you could have made the red light. You could have made it. And so she lays down on the horn. And then she starts yelling at him. And then she starts cussing at him. And then she starts telling him that he's number one. And the next thing she knew, there was a knock on her window. It was a police officer. Roll your window down. Okay. Would you step out of the car, ma'am? He arrests her, takes her to the station, books her. When everything's processed and she's on the way back out, he says, sorry, ma'am, there was a misunderstanding you see, I pulled up on you at the traffic light, and I, I saw your um, What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker. I saw your, your Choose Life um, license plate holder. You know, I, I saw your Follow Me to Sunday School window decal. I saw your fish decal on the back of your bumper, and I thought, well, I, I watched your behavior, and I thought, surely this person has stolen this car, <laughs> right? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If you live in the vineyard of God's grace, your life needs to show a demonstration of fruitfulness that you've been there eating a while, right? So God, the landowner, builds this thing, invites all people to it, but expects fruitfulness from us. So time and time again, the landowner keeps sending reminders to the tenants, sending his slaves to remind them what's expected. So that brings us to the slaves. In this parable, the slaves represent the prophets of old. All throughout the history of Israel, even though God had built this great vineyard, this opportunity to be a light on the hill, occasionally he would have to send a prophet to say to the people, look, yo, you're about to pull in the ditch on this. You're, you're going off the road. It's time to pull it between the yellow lines. And prophets would show up to correct the people and remind them of who they were meant to be. See, prophets in the Old Testament, they weren't fortune tellers. They weren't future predictors. That's not what a prophet does in the Old Testament. It doesn't predict the future. A prophet in the Old Testament is kind of an irritating somebody. They show up in the middle of town and stand in the middle of the town square and they cry out, with a reminder that you as a people have a conscience and you as a people have a name. And if you're going to go by the name Yahweh, if we're going to go by the name Christ, it means that we behave and live in a certain way where the fruit of our lives demonstrates it. So prophets were not very welcome and their message was often rejected. I mean rejected in the worst possible way. Some of the prophets that you may have heard of in our Old Testament are these. Jeremiah, who at the end of his message was tossed in a pit and then brought up and stoned. Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. Now listen, I've had some bad sermons. <laughs> but to date, I've not been sawed in half with a, a wood saw. Amos, Elijah, they, were, they had to flee because of death threats. Micah was punched in the face. Zechariah murdered in the very temple where he proclaimed. And John the Baptist was beheaded. Prophets arose to call the people to a conscious question. 
Are you living fruitfully as you have been designed to live? And can I ask a prophetic question today for us all? What are the prophetic voices in your life? What are they? Who are the prophetic voices in your life? Who is it that God has brought into your life in order to challenge you to a higher level of fruitfulness? Now, I'm not talking about who's your best friend, who's your BFF. I'm not talking about who encourages you, makes you feel good, lifts you up when you're having a bad day. No, those, that's what friends can do. I'm talking about who is the prophetic voice for you, who gets under your skin, irritates you because they tell you the truth. Because sometimes there are, there are better gifts than making us feel good. Sometimes the best gift is to tell the truth prophetically so that it wakes us up to new levels of fruitfulness. But time and again, they rejected one after the next prophet meant to come and lift up their fruitfulness. So the landowner runs out of options and sends his only son. This is the way the text describes the last and final straw. The text reads this. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And I will tell you, my sisters and brothers, this disturbs me. This is a disturbing part of the parable for me because what landowner in their right mind would see the things that have already happened See the pattern that was underway and still send his son, knowing what the end result would be. And yet, that's the point. It's that God's love is so relentless that God stopped at nothing to demonstrate the opportunity for us to live fruitfully, to be redeemed, and sends his own son. And when they finished hearing this parable, Jesus says to them, So, what do you think the landowner is going to do to these guys who killed his own son? And the Pharisees. And, and, the, and the priest said, well, they're gonna, he's going to come and, and, and kill them all and, and, and take the vineyard back. And Jesus offered these words. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the most important stone, the bedrock foundational stone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's amazing in our eyes. Jesus is that cornerstone, the one that was rejected not just by them then, but rejected by us now, and yet still comes to us and says, you can still build your life upon me, and it will hold. Barbara Brown Taylor, in writing about this parable, offers some powerful words of reflection. This is what she says. The tenants killed the son, but he would not stay dead. And to this day, he is still haunting the vineyard, reminding us that we are God's guests, welcome on this earth and welcome to it as long as we remember whose it is and how it is to be used. We can love it as our own. We can water it by hand and build fires against the frost and take deep pleasure in the harvest. We can even will pieces of it to our children, naming them as successors in the stewardship of the vineyard. All we may not do is spurn the owner and persecute his messengers, because to do that is to court our own destruction. To do that is to forget who we are and where we came from. 
beloved. May we remember who we are. May we remember where we came from. May we be fully aware, completely aware this day that this vineyard has been planted by a God who not only owns it, but loves it and welcomes you to it. May we not forget that if we say yes and we walk inside the gates of that wonderful vineyard that we are now on the hook, we're responsible for something. Our lives must bear the fruit as evidence that we live in the vineyard of grace. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, in this moment, we do pray that you would... uh, arouse an awareness in the depths of our soul that you who created the vineyard and welcomes us to it expects something from us that rent is due may our lives be the rent that we pay as we serve and love and obey the one who gave everything for us in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord of life Amen.